Hi, everyone. Well, uh, I'm fresh back from our family camping trip, which was interesting. We're away over the uh, hottest day of the uh, year so far, um, and the stormiest night. And I had a stomach bug. And the toilets were 250 yards away. So between um, figuring out I'm quite a good sprinter and doing a Google search whilst in the loo on how do you avoid being struck by lightning, it was an interesting um, trip. Now, you might think that's a bit like, you know, wow, that's very fear-filled. My brother-in-law, who we were camping with, he had five sheep hit by lightning the night before we went camping, so it was a very real issue for me. So anyway... I would love you to turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 14. If you haven't got a paper uh, Bible with you, you can open your device. You want an app that looks a bit like that. Um, However, if you press any of the apps that look like that, that is the sermon eject button. So try not to go there. Um, And uh, I'm just going to read a very uh, short but powerful story. So Luke 8, 14. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear and only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except for Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. And he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So um, I want to start with a little story for you this morning. It's 2008. Uh, I'm in the uh, glorious city of Cape Town in South Africa. Uh, We've been in South Africa for about three months uh, on sabbatical. And uh, as a family, we were actually at a healing meeting at the church we were visiting at that time. Quite a big name was visiting. He did the whole kind of healing thing. And there'd been a worship time and he'd taught a bit. And now it was ministry. Okay. Um, now, I need to explain that in, in this kind of context, it was one of those an- anarchic meetings that involved all those who had any kind of need whatsoever rushing the platform. Okay. So I want you to imagine a crowd that's about four or five people deep, the whole width of this massive church. And me, Mark, okay, not the fittest person on earth, 
I'm running around with our four-year-old son in my hands like Rafiki with Simba at Pride Rock, if you've ever seen The Lion King. And I'm trying to kind of track this guy as he's going along the crowd, trying to put Josh over the top because I was so desperate for him to touch our son. The reason is we were about 12 months away from an autistic diagnosis. And although we didn't have a diagnosis at that point, we knew something was very, very wrong with Josh's development. I cannot put into words in that moment how desperate I was to see God touch my son through the man who was in town. Now, the reason I start with that story is simply this. We can so easily rush when we read a story like this into Bible study mode. What are the three things we can learn about healing from this story? And miss the fact that at the heart of it are desperately broken lives that need a touch from heaven. In fact, nearly everywhere Jesus went, there was always some distress or desperate heart um, or desperate hope at the heart of the story that only a miracle from Jesus could touch. And I want to suggest to you that nothing has changed today. It's really easy in a context like this where kind of miracles seem to be happening all the time to forget that at the other end of those miracles are some incredibly desperate lives. And so this prompted a question to me, which is simply this. Why did people flock to Jesus? Why did they throng around him so much? Why did they grab at him? Why did they beg him to come to their house? And it seems to be because he always met people at their greatest point of need. And he successfully and radically impacted lives through that doorway and changed their world forever. And I honestly believe that the implicit and explicit thrust of the New Testament is that we would be vessels and conduits for the kingdom just like that. Like, I really believe that's what we're saved for. We're not just saved so we get the golden Willy Wonka ticket to heaven, you know, stick it in your back pocket and wait for the first bus out of here. That's not why you got saved. You got saved so you can be a conduit for heaven today. But here's a second question. Why was Jesus so good at it? Well, I don't know if you've had a go at it lately. You know, you know, like... Why was Jesus so good at what he did? Well, some of you might sit there and go, well, obviously, Mark, he was God. (laughs) And that's true. Well done. Yes, he was God. You know, Philippians 2.7 says to us that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And if you don't know what that means, let let me put it to you in these terms. When Jesus was on this earth, the stuff he did was not out of his own second person of the Trinity power. If you'd like to think of Jesus for a moment as Batman, it was like he took his utility belt off and chose not to access everything that was rightfully his in his own belt. Now you might say to me, well, he obviously had authority as well, Mark, and you're true on that one too. He did have authority. But he said this, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all people, commanding them, or sorry, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. What did 
Jesus command his disciples? Well, it was things like heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, drive out demons. Like he, he said, do that stuff. And then he said, those who you make disciples, teach them that stuff as well. That's a command for them too. And so for me, it boils simply down to this. Matthew twelve twenty eight. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, there's the clue, then the kingdom of God is among you. Do you understand what happened there? Jesus put down his own utility belt and whilst on earth, he chose to totally rely on the voice of the Father and the power of the Spirit. And so I like to phrase this as he carried the presence well. He carried the presence well. And I think the big question for us today is how can we carry the presence well? Well, the first thing I want to say is there's some little clues in this story that we've read. And the first of those clues is interruption. You see, in this overarching story, he steps out of the boat, having been in the Gentile territory on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You know, you know the guy, the demon who, who had demons, the guy who had demons and he was wrapped in chains. I mean, he was complete, a proper job, as I used to say in Devon. This guy was a proper job, running around naked. They chained him up because, you know, he's going to scare the children. And he breaks the chains. He's cutting himself. I mean, this guy is right off the deep end. And Jesus just goes, pow. He comes back to Capernaum, steps off the boat, and there's a crowd. And this guy steps out of the crowd called Jairus. And he says, will you come to my house? So the overarching story is Jesus gets off the boat and he gets an invitation to whose house? Jairus. He didn't set out on landing at Capernaum on healing this woman. He was going to Jairus' house. The woman was an interruption to his schedule. So we need to think about that for a moment. The woman was an interruption to his schedule. I don't know when you responded to Jesus' salvation. But there are a lot of Christians who don't understand that salvation is a mandate to reorder our lives around the Lord. Not a mandate to just bolt him on. Does that make sense? Like so many of us, we have busy lives, don't we? We're, we're, We're scheduled to insanity in our world. And we have our work life and our home life, and our weekly shop life, and the gym life, and social life, and probably a big chunk of Netflix life. And there's all these kind of boxes that are our life. And then we get saved, and a lot of people just add Jesus' life and bolt it on. But when you step into his glorious kingdom, what he said is this, see this stick of dynamite? He's going to blow all that up. And you're going to stick me at the middle And I want you to arrange all of that other life around my life in abundance. That's the mandate of salvation. It's not just a ticket out of hell. It's an invitation to partner with the most exciting person who has ever walked on this planet. And we have to learn how to let the Holy Spirit upset our timetable and rewrite our diaries. I had a friend from Zambia, a guy called Felix Muchimba. 
And uh, we used to uh, preach together at Bible College. We used to have great fun doing that. And I remember him getting up in the chapel pulpit one day and he took his watch off. He said, I don't know why I do this. He said, in the West, you all have watches and nobody has any time. He says, in Africa, where I come from, nobody has watches. and Everyone has lots of time. But it's the curse of our age. We are scheduled to insanity. And my concern is that we can be so scheduled that we have no margins, no room for manoeuvre when Holy Spirit says, Hey, stop right here. I have something for you. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel says this, Obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And you know, we live with these really seemingly contradictory binary truths of the kingdom sometimes. You know, church is family. That's great, isn't it? But church is also army. God is father. That's great. He's also king. And sometimes he says, stop. I have something for you. If you just walk in obedience on this, You're going to see me in a way you've never seen me before. Isn't that awesome? So the question is this. How interruptible are you? Number two, I I want to talk about identity. And to really understand the nuts and bolts of this story, let's dive into the Old Testament. No surprise there for me, I guess you know. Numbers 15. Numbers 15, and we're going to read from verse 37. Then the Lord said to Moses, who said to Moses? The Lord. Okay, so this is, this is God's idea, alright? The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them Not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which are still inclined to whore after. But you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. What a weird law. You ever read some of the Old Testament and thought, what is that? Well, I'm going to explain the what is that. Some of you might recognize this. This is a Jewish prayer shawl. And this thing exists because of that piece of text I just read to you. And it's simply this. God said to the Hebrews, on the corners of your robes, I want you to put tassels to look at. They are a physical, tangible, symbolic representation of something. My ways. So that when you look at them, that you will remember that my ways brought you from Egypt to Israel. That my ways brought you from slavery to freedom. That my ways brought you from darkness to light. So that before you're tempted to go after another way, which really isn't a way, I want you to have something to remind yourself, these are God's ways and God's ways are the best ways for my life. How cool is that? 
I don't know about you, but I was a jigger when I was a kid. I'd sit at the table and my knee would go. Any of you kinesthetic learners in here? You know, you have to fiddle with stuffs, spin pens, stretch rubber bands, snap rubbers, you know, bend paper clips. Yeah, some of you are kinesthetic in here and you're thinking, I have to sit still for 45 minutes. Okay, this is a kinesthetic tool. Here's something that you get to play with and you just get to run it through your feet. Oh, that's so good. That is really good. I just love that. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but I like it. And that's what this was for. It was a tool to remember. But here's the other interesting thing. In the ancient Near East, fringes and tassels were actually a common symbol in almost every culture of high office or royalty. Got an Assyrian king here. We've got the breastplate from Tutankhamun and a Persian king. What's the connection? They're all royalty. Tassels were seen as a kind of exuberant demonstration, a badge of office almost, a a kind of indication of your social status. And then God tells them to put this kind of strand of blue dye in this tassel. This tassel was dyed with a thing called tekelet, which is a, a really weird dye that comes from the murex sea snail. You have to catch so many of these things to make this blue that literally the dye is worth twice its weight in silver. And of course, for those of you who are prophetic in here, you'll know that blue is the symbol of the heavens, of royalty. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on in this little tassel that you're just meant to put on the corner of your robe and it's there for a reason. It's the marker of royalty. It's the marker of heaven. And each Jewish family, the father would teach their sons how to knot these tassels. And every family would have their unique way of doing it. And quite often they would use these to press into clay, a bit like a wax seal in the 18th century in the West. So like if you'd ordered something on Israel's version of Amazon, whatever it was then, and you hadn't paid, they'd bring the clay tablet around and say, look, 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 your, your little knot, it matches perfectly. You need to pay us. We sent you some kosher cheeseburgers. We want our shekels. Thank you very much. You get the picture. Jacob Milgram says this, the ancient Near East was an interesting place where corners and fringes on robes were elaborate decor used as an implicit social statement. In many cultures, equality comes through suppression. But in Israel, equality was by elevation. You understand how profound that is. He's saying that in almost every other culture in the ancient Near East, people were equal because, because the king set himself apart with tassels and suppressed everybody else. Yet in Israel, God says, I am elevating you and I am giving you the status of royalty, of high office, of heaven itself. When you wore this thing, you were making a declaration not just about whose you were, but who you were. And I love that because that is so what Jesus was like. In Jesus' day, when a rabbi called disciples, what it meant was, I don't believe you can be a student. It is, I believe you have the capacity in you to be who I am. 
Not like there's the master and here's some imperfect copies. It's here's the template and here is the exact representations. That is what sanctification is about. That's what our journey with Jesus is about. That's what it is to be conformed to the image of Christ. He is making you just like him. It's really quiet in here. There should at least be an amen or an ouch. But do you get that? Do you get what you're called to? So when you wore this, it was a statement of identity. And we see it all through scripture. That creation, God made them male and female in his image. That's the language of paternity, by the way, in the Bible. You know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, chip off the old block. John's gospel, those who received him, believed in his name. He gave the right to be called children of God. Romans, Paul talks, the whole of creation is waiting for you guys to be revealed for who you really are. There was something when you wore this that declared all of that. But it's not just that. It's a covering. Now in the Hebrew language, there's only about 8,000 words. In English language, we have maybe 80,000 words. So every one of their words covers about 10 of our words. So when God says to them, I want you to take tassels, and attach them to the corners of your robe. The word kanaf is the word corner, but it also means border, hem, or wings, which is kind of interesting. Why do you think that could be? Well, of course, they would wear this thing around their shoulders. I wonder where you get the idea of wing from. Batman. <clears throat> And over time, this thing developed when, when the Babylonians swept in and took the people into captivity to Babylon. They destroyed Jerusalem, the, the city that bore God's name. They destroyed the temple, the place that bore his presence. And so in captivity, there was no holy place anymore. And um, if any of you have ever had little boys around the house, you know how little boys like really fast sports cars, like I want to drive a Lamborghini one day or a Ferrari. But of course, no eight-year-old kids can afford a Lamborghini or Ferrari. So they go to the toy shop and they buy a little matchbox one. Well, this is the little matchbox version of the veil of the temple. And it said under here, in here is the presence of God. And so what you would end up with is it became a symbol of God's presence. Behind here is where God is. Under here is where God is. So at a wedding ceremony, you got married un- under the veil. We call it a chuppah. Not only that, the ceremony wouldn't just happen there. They would then take that to the bedchamber and put it over the bed. Shock, horror. <laughs> that God would be in the bedchamber whilst that kind of thing's going on. But you see, the great lie of the enemy is money, sex, and power is really great without God. And the great truth of Scripture is money, sex, and power are amazing things with God. The enemy will always try and take God's stuff out of a God context. And the true Bible mind will always drag it back into the presence of God and say, how would God change how we use this thing? It was also used in prayer. 
and I love this picture. I took this at the um, Western Wall in Jerusalem. Here's a dad, and he's got his two sons under his prayer shawl with him. He's blessing them. It's the famous high priestly prayer. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. You know that one? And you can understand why people would write in the scriptures about in the shadow of his, or corners, or hem, or... It's the same word. This was about daily life, because this was on the corner of your robe. You wore this thing every single day. It meant everywhere you went, every thought you have, every word you speak, everything you do, every single one of those things is in the presence of God. So here's the question I have for us. In our lives, are there places, times, conversations and circumstances where we do not welcome his presence? Okay, that was an uncomfortable enough pause. I want to talk about honour. Who's heard of Danny Silk? Yeah. So Danny written a fantastic book that encapsulates the relational culture that has marked why the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of Bethel is so ongoing. And um, there's a lovely phrase that he talks about in this whole culture of honour, teaching about to preserve intimacy with those I value relationship with, I will protect what is important to them. Okay, so let me give you an example of this. Um, When I first was married, you know what it's like when you join two cultures together. Um, We would be out driving. Sorry, Anne, I didn't give you warning about this. Um, We would be out driving and Anne would say things like, you're driving too fast. And I'd be like, no, I'm not. Because this was a discussion about opinions. Your opinion is it's too fast. My opinion is, no, it's not. It's probably not fast enough, actually. (laughs) And then she read that book and started saying things like, when I drive with you, I need to feel safe. <sighs> see, they're all changed then. You see, I've I nowhere to go with that one. Okay, Is, are you safe enough now? How about now? No. Okay, we're good now. And so we, we totally get this concept, and we're, we're learning this here, aren't we? And we're trying to deploy it relationally, one another. But I want to say this principle doesn't just work at a personal level. It works corporately as well. As a family in this church, we are walking in the blessing of some values that are held very, very tightly by those who have built the culture here. Things like freedom, things like presence, things like fun. That's not all of them. They're on the website. You can check them out. Do, actually, it's really important. And occasionally, we might find ourselves damaging the very values that have actually helped create this culture. So don't be surprised if at one point or another somebody comes to you and says, hey, you know when you did that thing? Well, that thing really impacted this important part of what we value so much here. We we call that confrontation, and it's a good thing, and it's a right thing. It's not just personally, it's not just corporately, but also it is heavenly. It's heavenly. We need to actually protect the things that are important to him. I want to give you an example of this. So let's just go back to this pressure. Let's look at the corner, and there's this tassel. 
You can see from the picture behind me, it's got a really weird setup. There's five knots. Each of those knots represents one of the five books of the Pentateuch, the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is symbolic of the word of God. Between those five knots are four spaces. yud Hey vav Hey, the four letters that make up the sacred name of God in the Old Testament. This is about valuing and honoring the name of God. There are 39 windings that go around the tassel, which equals the phrase, because in Hebrew, all letters have a numeric value. Hashem Echad. The name is one. That's the nature of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There's eight strands on each tassel. See, eight's the number of new beginnings, because you have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Start again. Eight is the number of new beginnings, or grace, as we call it. We get to begin to begin again with God. There are 613 loops in each tassel. And funnily enough, there's 613 laws in the Torah. This is the ways of God. See, the question for the Hebrews wasn't who had God's presence. The question was, how were they carrying the presence? Did they carry the presence in a way that honoured the name of God, that honoured the nature of God, that honoured the grace of God, that honoured the word of God, that honoured his ways? And, you know, being good tactile tools, they would literally wear these things on their hands. I don't know if you can um, imagine this. You've got this thing draped around your shoulder. And so literally, at the end of your fingertips, you have these reminders of all these important things to our Father. And before you could sin... You physically had to disentangle yourself from the name of God, the nature of God, the grace of God, the word of God, and the ways of God. Isn't that profound? Jesus said this in Matthew 23, 5, Beware those that like their tassels long. There were some who liked to make a big show of how godly they were. It was all an external thing. But the truth is, there is no intrinsic magic power in this. It's just symbolizing a more profound truth that's meant to be in here. 1 Samuel 24, David's hiding in a cave. It's a bit unfortunate because the very cave he's hiding in is the cave that King Saul, who's chasing after him, decides to go into to um, pass the time of day, go to the loo. And um, whilst he's uh, on the loo, we're told that David cuts the corner of his robe off. Now, most of us have understood that story as David's going, look how close I got to killing you. Ching, I got this. No, 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 no. The king would be wearing a robe because everybody in Israel was commanded to put tassels on the corner of their robe. What's David saying? He's saying, the way you are carrying the name, the nature, the grace, the word and the ways of God stinks to high heaven, much like this cave. And actually what you carry now, I am going to protect. It's a different story when you understand what the corner of the robe means.
Now, I want you to hear something really clear. I'm not setting up a new set of laws if you want to move in the Holy Spirit. This is not about contract. This is about relationship. So, um, yeah, I'm going to do this. Husbands, I want you to imagine you turning up on a Friday night from work. It's the weekend. We're hey. And you put on the table in front of your wife your marriage certificate and a copy of the vows and the things you said, like we will become one flesh. So uh, contractually... Um... <coughs> what kind of response do you think you're going to get? Yeah, that one. Okay. You turn up with a bunch of flowers because you know she loves flowers and a nice bottle of Pinot because you know she loves Pinot and you've got out a copy of When Harry Met Sally or whatever rom-com thing she loves to watch and you go, fancy a night in? You're going to get a different response, aren't you? That's what I'm trying to say here. Do not interpret this as here is some laws to make God work on your behalf so you look powerful. I'm trying to tell you there is something about what is precious in God's heart that you will be interruptible by him, that you truly will understand and believe who he says you are, that you cherish in your heart the things that are valued him. And when he sees that kind of passion for intimacy, he goes, that's the kind of person who I want to use in mighty ways. So let's bring it into land. Disaster or doorway. So there's this funny book called the Old Testament. It's actually lots of books. And it's full of prophecies about a coming Messiah, who we know is Jesus. Some of the prophecies are more well-known. Some of them are less well-known. One of the less well-known ones is from the book of Malachi. It's chapter 4, verse 2, and it says this. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. Now the word for wings there is kanaf, which is the word for corner, for hem, for fringe. What he seems to be saying is whoever Messiah is going to be, the way that he carries the presence honors God in such a way that healing flows from the very corners of his robes. And of course, Messiah, being an observant Jew, would have what on the corner of his robe? Tassels, yeah. If you want to know who Messiah is, watch him closely and he will have healing in his wings. And if he has healing in his wings, you're tracking the right person. So you may well have heard the story told like this before. This woman, she's nervous. She's in the crowd, probably crawling up for it. She thinks, if I could just touch the slightest little fringe on his garment, I know that I might get healed. That's not what's going on. She sees this thing and she goes, my scriptures tell me, If he's Messiah, there's healing in that thing. And I believe he is. And she grabs hold of everything that Jesus is. And boom, there was such a kind of dispersion of his power into her body, he even senses it. So there's this large crowd. Jairus, the synagogue leader, has said, come on, come to my place. My daughter's dying. She really needs your help. 
That's the whole point of the passage. Do you remember that? Okay. And on the way, a woman with an issue of blood who's been bleeding for 12 years comes up to him. Now you need to understand for the Hebrew mind, the number 12 is symbolic. Any clues? 12 represents Israel. And she has been leaking what? For 12 years? Blood. The life is in the blood. That's how the Jews thought. It's even in the scriptures. So for for 12 years, she's been leaking life. It's symbolic. Israel has been leaking life. And she pushes her way through the crowd. Now there's a problem. She's an unclean person. According to the Old Testament law, sin is not just the bad things we do, it's when we are less than perfect. So that could include things like dandruff. Just have a little ruffle of the hair of the person next to you. Um, see how they're doing. Um, it could be a skin condition. It could be menstruation. Now the rabbis blew this out of proportion. Not only was it unclean to touch a woman who was menstruating, but if you touched an object of furniture she'd been sitting on. And this is how they ramped up all of their laws, so you, got no, you couldn't get close to actually breaking the law. And so she was contagious. It was a sin to touch a woman who was bleeding. And if you became unclean, you had to go to the temple. You had to make a sacrifice. That meant you had to pay for a sacrifice. And it meant a six-day journey both ways from Galilee. That is inconvenient. Come on. Let's be honest. You jump into the story here. Let's stop being Christian for a moment. Jump into the real-life story. These are real people. It's inconvenient. I can promise you something. No one touched that woman for 12 years. It's no wonder she was so desperate. And so she reaches out. If he really is Messiah, he's going to have healing in the corner of his robe. And she grabs hold of it. Boom! The pressure level drops in power. What was that? Power's left me. Who touched me? Why would Jesus make this point? This is the only time in all of the healing miracles that he does that he makes the point someone touched him. Why would he do that? Because loads of people clutched his tassels, his fringe, his hem all the time. There's a number of scriptures that relate clearly that he did this, that, that they did this. But here's the thing. If he makes a point that an unclean woman touched him, he's now unclean. He's now got to go to the temple. He's got to pay for a sacrifice. He's got a six-day journey each way. And here's what I want to say to you. Jesus is more than willing to be perceived as unclean for the sake of someone else. He who knew no sin became sin. See, their world revolved around this. Contagious impurity. People with skin diseases, people who were menstruating or just given birth, people who were dead, you could get contagious uncleanliness from them. You were made impure. What they didn't count on was that Jesus carried contagious holiness. And everything he touched became clean. I want to drop a bomb on you right now, and here it goes. There have been places the church has been scared to go because we might become tainted. 
and we've not realised who we are and we've not realised who we carry and if we had, we would go into those places and they would become changed. That is the kingdom mandate. Not just go to the sort of mildly nice people doing eh, reasonably nasty things but not too bad. No, it's go to the dark and desperate and broken places and take contagious holiness with you. And so whilst Jesus is speaking, up rocks Jairus' servant. Uh, really sorry, Jairus, a uh, bit late. Your daughter's dead. Don't bother the rabbi anymore. Can you imagine the devastation? The disbelief? The anger at that woman? You've been sick for 12 years. Could you not wait for 20 minutes? And Jesus goes, it's okay. Let's go. Here's the thing I want to tell you. He could not have gone unless he was unclean. Because Leviticus says, to enter the room with a dead person makes you unclean. Rabbinical law would have said, no, you cannot do that. But of course, if you've been touched by someone who's unclean, who touched me? You've got a free pass. And he walks into that room. And here's what I want to say. Sometimes the things that we see as disasters are actually God opening a doorway. When stuff goes down in your life, it's easy to think, this is terrible. Okay, damage limitation mode. Rather than stopping and saying, okay, now God's just opening a doorway here. What's he about to do? And so he takes her by the hand. And he's wearing this thing that symbolizes all the stuff we've just talked about. He carried the presence in an interruptible way with full identity. He's consistently covered in the presence of God. He lives his life in a way that honors everything about God, his ways, his nature, his name. And he turns this disaster into a doorway. And we're told he grabs her hand and says, get up, get up. And she does. And scripture just happens to pass this little bit of information to us. She was 12 years old. See, Israel had been leaking life. Now Israel's saviour is leaking his life into her dead body. Under the presence, she has life leak into her. Would you like to carry the presence of God that well? You can. It's only the enemy who'll tell you you can't. I want to put some application up here, and I've written these down because I want you to take a photo if you've got a camera on your phone. Because this isn't this is what you have to do. These are some questions to walk through with Holy Spirit. Is that okay? So you ready? Here we go. Number one, when was the last time you were prepared for Holy Spirit to reorder your priorities and to rewrite your diary? When was the last time you were prepared for Holy Spirit to reorder your priorities and rewrite your diary? 
Number two, who do, who do you believe you are? If you were to complete this sentence, I am a... What comes to mind? And by the way, you're not allowed to put the word just in there. You're not allowed to say, I am just a... That's a legal language, just. You're not just anything. Number three, do you carry a constant awareness of his presence or is it just a programmed weekly experience? What places, times, conversations and circumstances is his presence strangely absent? Why do you think that is? Four. If you were to protect the intimacy you have with him by protecting what's important to him, what changes would take place in how you honour his name, how you honour his nature, how you honour his grace, his word and his ways? What would that look like and how would it be different from today? And finally, the last time you encountered disaster, were you looking just at damage control or were you looking for a doorway to a victorious divine display? What about the next disaster? What will you be looking for then? It's not overrun by two minutes. Can, can we stand? I, I just want to pray. Father, I just want to thank you that you don't just call us to be God chasers, but you call us to be God carriers and God conduits. I thank you that you are making us like Jesus. Day by day, step by step, from glory to glory. We want to carry the presence well. And I pray for each of us, because we are all different in this room, you would impress one or two things from this message that we need to go to work on, that we need to walk through with you and figure out. But I do that in hope and expectation, God, because I know you have greater things. We have only started to touch the fringes of your works in this place. And you have promised so much more than we're seeing. And we are full of hope for that which you've promised and prophesied. And so we just ask now, God, fill us afresh. Let us be interruptible. Let us fully know who we are. Let us be covered and saturated in your presence. Help us to protect and honour that which is important to you. And God, give us the eyes that in every disaster we can see the doorway that you are creating. We just ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Steph.